Welcome to GovCon Live. This is the fourth episode of our series on commercial businesses new to government contracting. In this episode, Katie Burroughs and Sam Finnerty review how to mitigate protests and disputes in government contracts. Before we join the discussion, we have some business to handle. This podcast is for informational purposes only. We are not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply. And the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. Let's get started. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us today for the podcast on bid protest size and status protests and the government contract dispute process. I'm Katie Burroughs and I'm a partner with Polaro Maza. My practice primarily focuses on bid protests and federal claims against the government in the context of REAs and and formal appeals at the various boards of contract appeals. And I'm joined here by Sam Finnerty today. Yeah, thanks, Katie. I'm also a partner at Polaro Mazza in the government contracts practice group. And in my practice, I also focus a lot on bid protests and status protests. A lot of what we're going to be talking about today, just helping our clients navigate the dispute process uh, related to federal government contracts and handling appeals. Uh, as well as a lot of regulatory issues that arise under the federal acquisition regulations and a lot of different small business regulations that are unique to our client base. So today we are going to be talking about bid protests and giving a quick overview of the bid protest process along with the size and status protest process and the REA and claims and appeal process. We're first going to touch on bid protests. Um, We're going to address the who, what, when, where, and why of bid protests. And we're also going to be discussing some of the unique claims and dispute processes for government contractors. So to kick things off, the first thing we wanted to give a little information on today is bid protests might be sort of a foreign word to companies that are working in the commercial space and are thinking of getting started in government contracts or have just gotten started in government contracts. But basically, unlike you know commercial contracts, Federal prime contracts can be protested, which is essentially when an interested party challenges the propriety of the agency's actions in connection with the specific procurement at issue. And there's really two types of ways this can be done. Essentially, you can have a pre-award protest or post-award protest, which, like the name suggests, the pre-award protest is going to be a protest filed by an interested party. Prior to the war, prior to award, this is usually done during the solicitation phase of the procurement, and a post-award protest is going to be filed when an awardee uh, has been selected by the procuring agency and an interested party, um, which is usually an unsuccessful offeror that also went after this procurement has issues with respect to the award decision or perhaps how they were evaluated as compared to the awardee and they want to formally challenge that decision made by the agency. So there are going to be generally three different venues where an interested party can file a protest. There is the least formal venue, um, which is to file a protest with the procuring agency itself. You can also file a protest at the U.S. Government Accountability Office, GAO, 
which is the primary forum for protests. That is where the vast majority of protests are filed. And the third venue option is to file the protest directly at the U.S. Court of Federal Claims. As you'd expect, there's numerous factors to consider um, when deciding whether or not to protest. Uh, First and foremost, you have to have factual support for your arguments or protest bases. In doing so, you should critically assess your competitive position. And by that, you know, whether or not you're the incumbent, is your price lower than the awardees? Are your ratings better than the awardee? Did you make an obvious mistake in your proposal? Those are some of the uh, issues to consider. Would also want to consider your impact on customer relations if you were to protest, and also input from your teammates. Sam had mentioned um, you have to be an interested party to protest. Uh, generally, an interested party is a potential offeror if you're looking at a pre-award protest or an actual offer that did not win if you're looking at a post-award protest. You may not be an interested party if you're not next in line for award, however. This is a really important consideration in a lowest price technically acceptable procurement in particular. In addition to being an interested party, you need to establish prejudice, which is the but-for of the protest process. So had the agency not made X errors, you would have been uh, the awardee of the contract is essentially the argument that would be made there. Debriefings are a really important aspect of the protest process as well uh, in FAR Part 15 procurement. Protesters should use debriefings to gather information for a protest. It's really important to request a debriefing within three days after you receive notice that you did not win the award. If you are eliminated from the competitive range, you need to be careful when considering whether or not to file a pre-award protest versus a post-award protest because there are timeliness issues that are attendant with those decisions. It's also really important to know that debriefings are not required for every procurement, uh, but you should ask for one anyway. Another important aspect of debriefings is for DOD procurements, which provide enhanced debriefings. So one of the important things to keep in mind, as Katie was talking about, the timing here with with protests can be critical. In the the pre-award context, you want to make sure that you get your protest filed by the due date for proposals. And the the issue here is that a, a common mistake is that offerors, they won't protest something during the solicitation process, and then they'll try to raise that as an issue on the back end when they find out who the awardee was. But there's going to be there's going to be a timing problem there because any issue that they had with this solicitation or, you know, if they were kicked out of the competitive range before an award was made, well, they can't challenge that uh, after there's been an award. That needs to be challenged pre-award. Often here, what uh, companies might find issue with is, you know, the terms of the solicitation itself. So this is where you want to be really diligent on the front end. It might be a little unique to you if you're just getting started in, in federal contracting, but you want to make sure that when the government puts out a procurement, you're carefully reviewing the terms of that solicitation and determining whether or not you fully understand the terms of what's being requested and that you understand how the evaluation is going to be conducted. And you're also giving thought to whether perhaps the terms of the competition 
or the terms of the evaluation criteria might be unfair to your company, might be, you know, perhaps unduly restrictive of competition. If there's anything in the solicitation you don't understand, you want to make sure that you raise that issue before you submit your proposal. Because if you submit a proposal thinking that the procurement laid out a ground rule that required you to do X, and at the end of the day, you were supposed to do Y, and as a result, you don't get the award, you're not going to be able to file a protest about that uh, in the post-award contest. So it's very critical that you thoroughly vet solicitations and you determine whether there is anything in there, either how the evaluation is being conducted or the way that the competition itself is being structured. You might think, for example, that the procurement uh, was released as a full and open competition, and it is a type of procurement where you think it should be set aside and exclusively available to small businesses or, um, you know, to businesses that have a certain socioeconomic status. But those are all things that you want to be sure that you're protesting on the front end. Some additional examples of other reasons to file a pre-award protest, um, in addition to those Sam's just talked about, include, you know, whether or not there's enough time to prepare proposals. If you don't feel that there's enough time for you to prepare and submit your proposal, you may want to protest that to see if the agency will extend the due date for submission of proposals. You may have concerns that another offeror might have an organizational conflict of interest. There also may be an improper cancellation of a solicitation or inclusion or exclusion of improper FAR clauses in the solicitation itself, which goes to the point that Sam made about having to take issue with solicitation provisions that you may have concerns about. Those all need to be handled pre-award. Another important aspect of pre-award protests is that the agency cannot award the contract until the resolution of the pre-award protest, but it can continue to evaluate while the protest is ongoing. So if you file a pre-award protest, you should still submit your proposal. In fact, you absolutely need to submit your proposal. And we would always recommend doing so to ensure you remain in the competition if your protest does not succeed. So the other kind of protest arises called a post-award protest. And these, you know, are the, are the protests that are going to be raised after the agency has completed its evaluation and it's selected an awardee. The process here, um, it's really important to keep in mind the timing of when you need to assert these types of protests. So like we talked about the pre-award protest, you've got to file before the deadline for the submission of proposals. In the post-award context, if you're filing with the agency or a GAO, you need to file within 10 days of when you knew or should have known the basis for your protest, which, you know, if you're dealing with a required situation where a debriefing is required, that might be 10 days from when you get the debriefing. If the debriefing is not required, this could be 10 days from when you get that notice that you were unsuccessful in the pursuit of this procurement and another offeror was selected as the awardee. If you're going to the Court of Federal Claims, there is not a strict deadline to file a protest, but, you know, not just you want to kind of file sooner rather than later. Um, certainly, the longer you let things play out, the award is not only going to go to another company, but they're going to start performing. And it, you know, might be not as valuable to wait months on end after that contract has already been in place and off and running. This means that you really want to act quickly once you receive the award notice. You want to make sure that you're 
tracking all of your deadlines and following all of the procedures and processes to make sure that you're preserving your right. You're, you know, calculating what the protest deadline is. You're determining if it's a type of procurement where a debriefing is required, which a debriefing essentially is just it's a more thorough explanation of the basis for the award decision. I mean, it's, it's something that's supposed to provide clarity and some transparency into the award process. In theory, it's supposed to deter protests because it's supposed to give those other companies that did not win the award a little bit more information about why they didn't win the award. But it can also provide those companies with the information that they need to file a protest. But you want to make sure that if it's a situation where debriefing is permitted, that you're promptly requesting that debrief. And that once you get your debrief, you're promptly following up and protesting uh, in accordance with any deadlines associated with the receipt of that debrief. So some examples, really, of what, you know, what arguments you might pursue in the post-award context. Common ones are just, you know, the agency didn't evaluate how it's supposed to evaluate. The solicitation in a federal procurement has very clear guidance on how you're supposed to prepare your proposal and then how the agency is going to evaluate that proposal. And they'll break it down into multiple different categories. They'll often have the technical evaluation and then they'll perhaps evaluate your, the company's corporate experience or its past performance on similar contracts. There's usually an evaluation of price as well. Um, and there will be specific criteria as to how they're going to evaluate each of those factors or sub-factors. So if you get an, uh, you know, an award decision and you think that they either failed to take something into consideration when they were evaluating the awardee or they improperly evaluated your proposal against those criteria, well, that might be a good time to file a protest or consult with a protest attorney to see you know, what your grounds for protest might be. Agency also needs to treat offerors equally when they're evaluating against certain criteria. So if it looks like, you know, they relaxed a requirement for the awardee and they held your proposal to a higher standard, that could be something that arises, you know, that leads to a protest basis. A common basis for protest is a failure to evaluate price realism, which when a price realism component is included in a solicitation that requires the agency to evaluate whether the proposed prices were too low. So if that is a component of the evaluation and the awardee submits a winning price that is, you know, tails in comparison to your price, it's just exceedingly low. And you might be able to argue that their price is unrealistic. In best value procurements, which is when the agency doesn't evaluate based on a lowest price, technically acceptable basis, Instead, they do a trade-off to determine what the best value offeror is. They're supposed to trade off the technical and the price evaluations and determine, you know, whether the ratings that are technical and the price, who in the context of those different ratings is really the best value offeror. Another protest ground could be related to discussions. If the agency during the procurement process opens things up for discussions, permitting offerors to revise their proposals, they are supposed to you know, point out certain deficiencies and weaknesses in your proposal if they fail to do so, or you think that perhaps they permitted the awardee to do something during discussion that they didn't permit you to do, that could be a basis for protest. Importantly to keep in mind, though, the best arguments in the protest process are typically the ones that involve 
process flaws. And these are really like the black and white issues where you're arguing that the solicitation that the agency was supposed to do X and they did Y. Those are, those are the, you know, the winning type of arguments. The really difficult ones to prevail on are arguments that involve a high degree of subjectivity. And these, you know, are essentially where you're protesting because you just don't like how you were evaluated and you don't like your score or you don't like your ratings or you think they were unfair. And these types of arguments generally just amount to disagreement. Um, a protest can't be based on mere disagreement with the agency's evaluation. There have to be actual definable reasons why the agency failed to follow a certain factor or they violated some procurement law on how they evaluated the offerors. If you challenge areas where the agency has a lot of discretion as well, those are going to be difficult to prevail on. Things like past performance, when an agency evaluates the relative merits of the different past performance of competing operators, that's an area where they just inherently have a lot of discretion. So those are some of the more difficult process bases to prevail on. Another issue to consider when deciding whether or not to protest at the agency or GAO or the Court of Federal Claims is the suspension of contract performance. At the agency and at the Government Accountability Office, GAO, um, suspension of performance will occur automatically if the protest is filed within 10 days of contract award or five days after required post-award debriefing. Again, that's at both the agency and at GAO. Now, generally speaking, the agency won't try to override the stay. That's a very rare occurrence, but it is possible. But as a practical matter, in most cases, contract performance will automatically be suspended if you timely file with the agency or at GAO. At the Court of Federal Claims, there is no automatic suspension. Instead, the protester has to convince the Department of Justice to either voluntarily stay performance or convince the judge to enter, to enter a preliminary injunction or temporary restraining order um, suspending performance or enjoining the agency from continuing performance. So those are some really important differences between filing with the agency and the Government Accountability Office versus the Court of Federal Claims. There are additional pros and cons to each of those forums, which, you know, I'll walk through next. With regard to agency-level protests, those can often be less adversarial. There, again, is an automatic suspension of performance. And typically, agency-level protests are resolved within 35 days, which is the shortest time period in all three uh, forums to resolve the protest. Some of the cons of filing an agency-level protest as compared to filing with GAO or the Court of Federal Claims, is that the protest is not likely to be reviewed by a neutral third party. Obviously, the agency itself is reviewing its own actions when you're filing an agency-level protest. Um, you're also unlikely to get any documents from the agency. They don't have to issue a report or produce documents, so you're not really going to have any insight into why the agency made the decisions that it made. There's also a shorter duration of contract suspension because the uh, protest is going to typically get resolved within that 35-day period. With regard to protesting at GAO, some of the pros, pros are that, again, there's an automatic suspension of the contract performance. It's typically resolved in 100 days, so longer than the agency, but typically shorter than at the Court of Federal Claims. 
and the um, filing a protest with the government accountability office is also generally simpler and less costly than at the court of federal claims. It's a little bit more costly than the agency level protest because there's more briefing involved uh, and it is a longer, more in-depth process, but it's typically substantially less costly than filing with the court of federal claims. Some of the cons of filing with GAO are that there are strict and tight deadlines similar to the agency. Statistics are decidedly in favor of the agency at GAO and discovery or the documents that the agency typically produces are going to be more limited than at the Court of Federal Claims. With regard to the Court of Federal Claims protests, deadlines for post-award protests are more forgiving than at the Government Accountability Office. Typically, the documents produced by the Department of Justice and the agency are much more comprehensive than at the Government Accountability Office or with regard to an agency-level protest. Protests at the Court of Federal Claims also involve the Department of Justice. Uh, They are representing the agency uh, as opposed to GAO protests and uh, protests with the agency. The agency is being represented by its own counsel. Um, Another pro of filing at the Court of Federal Claims is the potential to get a permanent injunction staying performance. Some of the cons of filing at the uh, Court of Federal Claims is that, again, there is no automatic stay of award or performance. You have to convince the Department of Justice either to voluntarily stay performance or you have to convince a judge that they should enjoin performance pending the protest. Another con is that filing with the court is generally substantially more expensive than with GAO. Not always. It certainly depends on how involved and complicated the protest is, but it is generally more expensive uh, than filing at GAO. So we talked a lot today about your ability to protest and, you know, what happens if you're not happy with the way that you were evaluated or you're not happy with the outcome and you think that you should have won the award or you have issue with perhaps the way the awardee was evaluated. The other important thing to keep in mind is that in protest, you know, unfortunately, you might pursue a contract diligently and be successful in getting that contract and then find out that your award has now been protested. And the protest process is not just for the unsuccessful agreed party. It is also a process that can be taken advantage of by the entity itself whose award has been protested. So this is what's called intervening in a protest. Uh, If you are the awardee, you can intervene. And at GAO, and at the Court of Federal Claims. You don't have the opportunity to do this at the agency because agency-level protests are really just a paper submission submitted by the protester resolved very quickly within that 35-day timeline. But when you're at a more formal forum like GA or the Court of Federal Claims, you can actually intervene. So you can, you know, you'll be notified if your award is protested. You can then get a redacted copy of that protest. And then you can file a notice entering essentially your appearance often through counsel in that case. The reasons you might want to do this is a number of strategic reasons, in addition to just getting some insight on why it is perhaps your award has been protested and where things stand with respect to the protest. Because unfortunately, if you're the awardee and someone protests your award, it's you know very likely that there is going to then be a suspension of performance issued and you're not going to be able to start performance until the protest process is resolved. 
So if you intervene, one of the great advantages is that you then, you know, in essence, are on the same side as the agency at that point. They've chosen you as the awardee. Presumably, they feel confident in that decision. And you can then step in and help the agency defend that decision. You can participate in the filings that take place. You can file um, what are called comments, which are filed in response to the agency's submission in the case, in which, you know, in which case you'd be arguing why the award decision was correct, which would be supporting the agency's position. You can also hope to limit some of the document production. Protests are going to request that the agency produce certain documents. A lot of times protesters request a lot of documents that are not directly related to their specific arguments. You know, in, in litigation terms, they want to go on a fishing expedition, see what else they can drum up and what other arguments they might be able to make. If you get involved, you might be able to work with your counsel who's got your best interests at heart and confer with the agency and try and get on the same page with the agency to ensure that they limit the production to only those documents that are really relevant to the protester's argument. You can also help ensure that any confidential information that is in the record that is not necessarily the subject of disclosure in the protest, you might be able to protect that confidential information from release. In evaluating the protest with, with your own attorney, you can also see the scope of the arguments and your attorney might be able to um, come up with some legal reasons why those arguments should be dismissed early on in the process, which would allow you to limit the number of issues that you're fighting. A lot of times, agencies take corrective action in response to protests. And so if you get you know, your foot in the door early and you work with an outside attorney who is able to size up the legal merits of the protest, they may be able to convincingly you know, persuade the agency to not take corrective action, put their foot down, and to really try and defend their award decision. In general, this allows you by intervening to be a part of the process. You get to be involved in the conversation. You get to keep tabs on the protest. And it is something that, should you find yourself in the unfortunate position of having an award protested, you should strongly consider. And given that a lot of information filed in protest is going to be under a protective order, that you as the entity are not going to be able to see. It's something that you want to get a government contract attorney involved in because they will be able to work behind the scenes and to advocate your interests where you otherwise might not be able to if you try to handle it on your own. So, you know, what happens then? You get either you're filing a protest, you're going after an award, your protest, your award gets protested. What happens at the end of the day? How do these cases get resolved? What type of resolution is available? So, like I mentioned a moment ago, something that can happen is what's called voluntary corrective action taken by the agency. This is really the most common outcome that occurs when a protest is filed. And what I mean by corrective action is the agency essentially, before the protest goes to a final decision on the merits by either the Court of Federal Claims or the Government Accountability Office, the agency essentially decides to go back and redo part of its process. This can include a number of different things. But, you know, they might go back and just say, all right, we're going to do a reevaluation. They might permit all the offerors that were in the competitive range to revise their proposals. They might also cancel the solicitation and say, you know what, we messed something up so badly here. We've got to go back, change the ground rules of the solicitation, reissue a new revised solicitation, start this whole procurement over. 
essentially the agency isn't necessarily admitting they're not admitting guilt or that they did anything wrong but it's it's, it's essentially a an admission that perhaps something in the record um, doesn't look quite right and they want to go back and take a second pass at things the other possible outcome here is a decision on the merits and this is going to look a little different depending on whether you're at the government accountability office or the court of federal claims but Essentially, what GAO is going to do if they issue a, a decision in a protest is they're going to recommend, they're going to either sustain or deny the protest. And they can sustain, much like in regular litigation, they can sustain certain arguments and not sustain others, deny those arguments. What they're going to do at the end of the day, though, if a protest is sustained, is they're going to issue a recommendation that the agency does something. And oftentimes that recommendation, you know, it's going to be in line with the protest arguments that they sustained. So if they determined that the agency evaluated a certain factor incorrectly, they're likely going to recommend that the agency go back and reevaluate that factor. It is just a recommendation, though. If you go to the Court of Federal Claims, the Court of Federal Claims is going to issue a more binding decision that actually requires that the agency goes back and does whatever that, um, that redo of the procurement looks like. Of course, while the recommendation at GAO is only a recommendation, those recommendations are by and large followed by agencies because if agencies don't follow those recommendations, they have to report those decisions not to follow the recommendation to Congress and their reasons why they decided not to follow the recommendation. So there is quite a bit of oversight there. Another possible outcome with a successful protest argument is that you might be able to recover your attorney's fees. But just another thing to keep in mind as you're measuring and sort of evaluating the pros and cons of this process. So we've been talking this whole time about bid protests, but there's also a, a couple other types of protests, which include size and status protests. These types of protests can be filed by an eligible offeror, the contracting officer, or the SBA. These can be filed in any procurement where an off, uh, offer is required to represent its size or its status. So they can be filed on set-aside contracts and task orders, and then for task orders under IDIQ and schedule contracts, you should check whether the uh, solicitation contains an explicit recertification requirement. As with bid protests, size and status protests also have pretty strict timing requirements. For sealed bids, uh, size and status protests must be received by the contracting officer prior to the close of business on the fifth business day after bid opening. With regard to negotiated procurements, the protest must be received by the contracting officer prior to the close of business on the fifth day after the contracting officer has notified the protester of the identity of the prospective awardee. And then finally, the contracting officer and SBA may initiate a protest at any time. So all of this is to say that you should, if you're considering a size or status protest, you should contact uh, a protest attorney uh, as soon as possible to make sure that you are not missing um, any of these deadlines, which in those cases, you wouldn't be able to protest at all. So if you want to give yourself the option of protesting, you should reach out to a protest attorney uh, as soon as possible. So what types of arguments you know, would you be making in a, in a size protest? Essentially, what you're doing here is you're arguing that the apparently successful offeror exceeds the size standard. So there's NAICS codes for set-aside procurements that carry all different types of size standards. And in this case, you're saying that 
It's either the number of employees, average number of employees that the awardee has, or the average receipt that the employee has over the applicable period of measurement to exceed that standard, whether it be a receipt-based standard or an employee-based standard. And the comp- essentially, the company's too large. They're larger than they have to be to compete for this type of set-aside contract. So, you know, ways you might find out information um, to raise these types of arguments, you could look online, you, know, you get publicly available award data that suggests that the awardee has been awarded a, a lot of contracts over the last few years, and the awarded value of those contracts is really high. And if you do a rough back of the envelope calculation, that number suggests that they're significantly over the size standard. Another basis for them to exceed the size standard other than just their own receipts alone are the receipts that they have to include from their affiliates, which is any company that controls or has the ability to control another. If that's the case, then you're affiliated with that entity and you have to include their receipt. So this comes up a lot where you know one company is owned by an ownership group that also owns another company. And if that's the case, then they might have to pool their receipts when they're calculating their size standards. You could have affiliation when a husband and wife own companies or a father and his son or daughter own a company and vice versa, a mother and their child own a company. You can also have affiliation where you've got a really small business and it does all of its work with one really large prime contractor. They could be found to be affiliated with that entity based on what's called economic dependence. Another basis for a finding of affiliation is common management. This is where you know, the managers of company A also manage company B. Well, those two companies might be deemed affiliated, in which case they've got to pool their receipts for their employees when they're calculating their size. So, you know, a lot of times here, people are just throwing stuff at the wall. They're finding some bits and pieces of information online to suggest that the awardee is, you know, over the size standard, a pretty low evidentiary bar to get FBA to start the protest, protest process in this case. So oftentimes it really is just a company that found some publicly available information. So, you know, the reason to be careful what you put out on the internet because it can come back to bite you. Um, particularly when you're bragging about associations with other entities, and that leads a disgruntled offeror to file a protest suggesting that you are not eligible for the hard-fought set-aside contract that you just were awarded. So the process, you know, assuming you've got enough information to file a size protest, you're going to file that protest to the contracting officer. The contracting officer is then going to forward that protest to the SBA area office, and the area office is then going to initiate a size determination. They're going to notify the protested firm that they've been protested. The protested firm is going to have the opportunity to respond to the allegations, and they're going to have to provide a lot of information that SBA is going to request. There's information that will be requested about either their employees or receipts, depending on the size standard. They might ask for organizational documents, depending on the allegations. They might ask for bylaws, evidence of information, pertaining to allegations that they are affiliated with other entities. And the area office is then going to issue a decision, usually within 15 days. That decision will be sent to both the protestor and the protested firm. And if the protested firm is found to be other than small, an award has not yet been made, and the agency is going to be precluded from awarding that contract. If the protested firm is found to be other than small, but award has already been made, 
the agency still might be able to proceed with the award. Um, but there's going to be some factors that, that play into whether or not they're going to be able to do that. So Sam's just been talking about size protests, turning to status protests. The process is similar. You send the protest to the contracting officer, and then the contracting officer will forward the protest to the Small Business Administration. Women-owned small business protests are handled by the SBA's Office of Government Contracting. Veteran-owned small business protests are handled by OHA, and then hub zone eligibility protests are handled by the hub zone office. Notably, you cannot protest an 8A status based on ownership and control, just something to keep in mind. In a status protest, uh, the protested firm is given the opportunity to respond as well, and then the decision is issued. So the other important topic we want to talk about today was some of the unique processes that arise in government contract disputes. So one of the, the first uh, unique procedures that, that happens is a request for equitable adjustment. There's not really an official definition for what this is, but a request for equitable adjustment or an REA is essentially a request that you submit during the performance of a government contract where you're requesting compensation, be that time, money, or both. And that is based on changes that occurred during performance. If there was a suspension of work, you might be requesting time or money due to the factors that that arose as a result of that suspension, or there could be other things that arise during contract, contract performance that you believe entitle you to additional time or money. This is important to differentiate from a claim, which I'm going to also talk about, but an REA is less formal than a claim. It is essentially the procedural requirements of it are uh, not the same, and they are distinct avenues of disputes resolution that you could pursue here. So with an REA, one of the important things is that the reason you might want to pursue an REA is that you can include your attorney's fees and the administrative costs as well as your internal costs in pursuing the REA. Timing with an REA, generally you want to submit these within 30 days of the change that occurred that gave rise to you having a basis for an REA. And you can submit these during contract performance or during closeout. You can't submit these after you've already closed out the contract. The strategy with an REA is that, you know, in addition to being able to claim your attorney's fees and costs, these can be viewed um, as less litigious than a claim, which I'm going to talk about as well. And it can also be viewed as, as used as a precursor to a claim where you can pursue an REA. You're unsuccessful in that pursuit. You can then easily convert that into a claim, which is a more formal dispute with the government. So claim then, by contrast, is a written demand or written assertion by a contracting party seeking as a matter of right the payment of money in some certain, the adjustment or interpretation of contract terms or other relief arising under or relating to the contract. Procedurally, these have some different requirements. You've got to certify claims that are in excess of $100,000, and claims are governed by the disputes provision that's going to be in your prime federal contract and by the Contracts Dispute Act. When you're pursuing a claim, procedurally, you want to make sure that you include all the arguments that you have because you're not going to be able to raise any new arguments should your claim be denied and you then find yourself appealing that claim out of the Board of Contract Appeals or at the Court of Federal Claims. What you want to do 
when you submit a claim, unlike a REA, if you want to formally identify it as a claim, indicate that you're submitting it under the Contracts Dispute Act, and you want to request what's called a contracting officer's final decision. The timing for you to submit one of these is rather lengthy. You have 60 years after the claim accrues to submit it, but you know, there's probably reasons why in a lot of cases you want to get that submitted a lot earlier. Typically, as it relates to funding, if you wait six years, it might be a lot harder early on at a, you know, potentially a negotiated resolution to get the money that you're seeking if the contract has been closed out and the procuring agency long no longer has funds earmarked for that, uh, that contract or, or that project. The timing here for a decision after you do submit your claim, it depends on the type of claim that you submit. If it's a claim that's under $100,000, the contracting officer has to issue a final decision within 60 days of submission. If your claim is over $100,000, though, they have the option of doing two things. Within 60 days, essentially, they have to either issue that decision or they have to tell you when they're going to issue that decision. And there are some upper bounds on how long they can delay, depending on the complexity of the claim. But it's you know, important to keep in mind, if you're dealing with a larger claim, then you might not get a final decision within 60 days. It could be much longer than that. It could be months. It could be half a year. It could be even longer in certain instances. If it's a non-monetary claim, the guideline is that the agency contracting officer is supposed to respond within a reasonable time. Another important procedural note is if you don't get a response from the contracting officer within those deadlines I just talked about, then there are some um, arguments you could make to essentially, at that point in time, deem the claim as having been denied, which would then allow you to just proceed with an appeal and hopefully get a resolution to your claim if it seems like it's something that's just festering with the agency. Now, another big area of claims that arises in government contracts is has to do with termination. If your government contract is unfortunately terminated for default, that in and of itself is a contracting officer's final decision. Termination notice should say that. It should lay out the timelines of your appeal process. But just important to note, if it's terminated for default, you don't need to file a claim disputing that termination for default. You can immediately appeal uh, the agency's decision to terminate your contract. So Sam just threw a lot of information at you regarding the process of filing a claim and awaiting a decision. There are numerous arguments and issues that you can bring in the context of a claim, but just to name a few of the common arguments and issues that are addressed in claims are delay, changes to prevailing wages, differing site conditions, suspension of work, changes to the contract, stop work orders, as Sam mentioned at the end there, terminations for default. There's also CPAR claims where you can bring claims relating to uh, the um, performance reviews that you've received uh, by the um, by the government agency. And those CPAR claims do have additional deadlines that are involved there um, that should be considered when when filing a claim relating to there's some other procedural issues relating to CPAR claims. With regard to the appeal process, if the contracting officer denies the claim that you had filed where you requested a contracting officer's final decision, you can appeal that um, decision to the Board of Contract Appeals or the U.S. Court of Federal Claims. There are deadlines attached with these filings as well. You have 90 days to appeal to 
the appropriate board of contract appeals. Depending on the agency that you're contracting it with, it might be um, the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals or the Civilian Board of Contract Appeals. Some agencies also have their own um, boards of contract appeals. Uh, with regard to filing a claim at the U.S. Court of Federal Claims, um, you have 12 calendar months to appeal to the U.S. Uh, Court of Federal Claims. So there is a substantially longer time period to file with the court um, as opposed to uh, the various boards of contract appeal. It's also important to note once you choose the venue, you can't switch. As Sam had mentioned, in the appeal process, you're constrained in the appeal by the arguments that you raised in the in the claim. So if you didn't bring that argument before the contracting officer for a final decision, you cannot raise it uh, for the first time in the appeal. And with regard to the process for filing an appeal, it's very similar to, you know, general commercial litigation. There's discovery and motions practice. Um, and it's a much longer process um, than protest. And then with regard to choosing which forum to file in, whether that's at uh, one of the boards of contract appeals or at the U.S. Court of Federal Claims, at the board, um, the agency is represented by an agency attorney, whereas at the Court of Federal Claims, is, the agency is represented by the Department of Justice. So that's similar to the bid protest process. It may also be easier to push for settlement or alternative dispute resolution at the board. Another pro of filing with one of the boards of contract appeals is that it's typically less costly than um, the Court of Federal Claims. Again, similar to the protest process in that regard. So that was a lot of information that Sam and I just threw at you with regard to bid protest, size protest, status protest, request for equitable adjustments, claims, and appeals. So I think the biggest takeaway is to reach out to your attorney sooner, sooner rather than later so you don't miss the filing deadline and always pay attention to the timing, the rules and regulations with regard to timely file, filing your protests or your claims. Yeah, the other thing to keep in mind is that federal contracting, unlike commercial contracting, there's a lot of things you can do during the process to set yourself up for success, but it does require that you know the landmines that are out there and, and how to avoid them and what type of things you want to get as you're putting your proposal together and as you're reviewing solicitation. So there's a lot to educate yourself about. And like Katie said, a good government contract attorney is well suited to help you through the process. Thank you guys so much for joining us today and stay tuned for our next episode. This podcast is a Polero Maza production and music credits go to bensound.com. Please subscribe and hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.